Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Kevin Falta, thank you very much, and please do a goddamn podcast, will you, sir? Thank you, Please, Joe. people would love it. I think you could help a lot of people by answering a lot of questions like you did today. You were fantastic. I appreciate the hell out of you, man. Will thank do. you very, thank very you, much. Welcome to the fifth year anniversary of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Five complete years of podcast guests committed to a better planet and better people, solutions through genetic engineering, and of course, all technologies. It's one part of the tapestry of different opportunities we have to improve the situation for people on the planet and the planet itself. So uh, thank you very much for listening. So five years ago this week, I sat with Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, who has really ridden his meteoric rise in visibility, mostly because of a top-ranked podcast, uh, I think the episode I was on had more downloads, like maybe four times the downloads as this podcast has had in five years, in one day. Uh, so far, we're up to 244 episodes, five years, and uh, about 1.3 million downloads. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. You know, as a scientist who has uh, had some challenges when stepping into the public forum, either from uh, enemies of science and friends of science, strangely, it's awesome to know that something is sticking. And what's great is that every week that, that this goes up, I get notes from people about individual podcasts, questions for the uh, guests, uh, questions that can be resolved regarding the content. We have so many good reviews on iTunes, something like 200 and something uh, reviews. One person gave three stars, everybody else fours and fives. So <laughs> not bad. Um, pretty good. There's somebody out there who calls it a solid C, but eh, you know, can't win them all, right? So I thank you very much for this because it isn't just me. It's all of us. And it's the listeners that put the fuel in the tank to drive the continued work on this kind of podcast. It takes a lot of work. Um, I'm the number 17 podcast in the life sciences. And I know that doesn't sound that impressive. But when you look at the thousands and thousands of them, uh, many of them highly produced, where this is what they do. You know, every week it's to produce a podcast. And for me, on my priority list, it's somewhere like number 20. It, it, it has to be. You know, I'm a professor at a major university. My main job is research, working with my graduate students and postdocs, uh, publishing our research. We've had the best years of publication we've had in a long time, writing grants to try to get limited amounts of federal money. And then I go home at night and I help my wife, who's a farmer, who we produce fruits and vegetables. And every night it's treating the trees or planting something else or grafting or whatever. So 
I have so many other priorities that grab my attention aside from the podcast, yet every week we make it happen. And it comes together every week because of outstanding guests and outstanding listeners. And so that I thank you very much. I'm very grateful for you allowing me to have this. So uh, today's guest, for the fifth year anniversary, I wanted to have something special. And it really goes back to the early 1980s when genetic engineering was just starting to happen. And I was a kid, you know, I was like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, but I was watching this happen. And I had an obsession with recombinant DNA. I thought it was such a cool idea. And whereas most kids my age wanted to grow up someday and meet Ace Fraley, I wanted to meet Rob Fraley. (laughs) Rob Fraley was on the scientific team that in conjunction with others, such as Dr. Mary Dale Chilton, uh, Dr. Mark Van Montague, and Dr. Jeff Schell, all these other groups, uh, they were working on genetically engineering plants. And we've heard previously on this podcast from Dr. Ray Shilido, uh, you know, some of the discussion about what was happening at the time. But Dr. Fraley was there at the beginning, and we'll discuss what was happening at the time and how it was coming together. You know, what, what was it that he hoped to see in the future of genetic engineering of plants? He then spent many years with the Monsanto company working in corporate science and the changes that occurred over the years inside that company. And then later, what would happen is he would really shift his focus from the science and from the management to the communication side and how important that was in changing the way he discusses science. So it's an interview I think you'll really enjoy and one that really marks a clear spot five years into the archive of outstanding guests and intriguing scientific discussion. Going forward, I think you'll see me revisit a lot of the original guests uh, trying to get on folks from Arctic Apple, from uh, going back to the Aqua Bounty Salmon, uh, talking to some of the people who promised us innovations five years ago and see where they are. So continue to listen. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it so much. And here's the interview with Dr. Rob Fraley. Today's guest is Dr. Rob Fraley. He's a former chief technology officer of the Monsanto Company and also the World Food Prize winner in 2013, along with Dr. Mark Van Montague and Dr. Mary Del Chilton. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fraley. Great to join you. Looking forward to this. <laughs> I am too. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. You're one of the major gets I've been hoping to find in, in uh, the last few years. I'm going to do my best so you don't regret that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'll have a problem. I've actually been following you since the early 1980s um, when I was a you know, college student and watching genetic transformation of crops. You know, your work and the work of what's happening at the time was of, of great interest. So this is kind of a th- like almost what, 25 years later, yeah. uh, maybe more than that. 30 now. It, that was back in the early eighties. So uh, yeah, we're like almost yeah, 28 years later, yeah. um, you know, able to really sit down and talk about it. so cool. So let's talk about your background in science. Where did you study and what attracted you to the area of genetic engineering? Well, I'll do a I'll do a quick story for you. So, um, 
uh, you know, like a lot of folks, uh, I had the experience of growing up on a small farm in Illinois and, uh, you know, grounded uh, early on in the uh, cycle of life with livestock and also the challenges of, uh, of uh, crop production and, you know, dealing with everything from uh, southern leaf corn blight to uh, fungal diseases, uh, droughts and uh, too much or too little rain. And so, uh, you know, I think that grounding on the farm uh, uh, was important in, as I look back. Uh, I went to a local uh, small country high school. I had a, a great science teacher who was my uh, mentor and taught me everything from biology to chemistry to physics. And uh, in a small school with 18 in the class, he convinced me that uh, that I could uh, should go to college and uh, and study research. And I was fortunate enough to uh, to get to the University of Illinois and uh, get my uh, bachelor's degree in uh, biology. And I was fully prepared to, uh, to uh, uh, get a job as a microbiologist or food safety. And I went home for the summer after I graduated and I got a phone call from one of the professors uh, named Sam Kaplan, who I took a class with, who had just gotten a grant to study membrane synthesis and photosynthetic bacteria. And I, uh, I jumped at the chance and uh, I went on to get a PhD in uh, microbiology and biochemistry. So that was kind of my uh, formal training. And then, uh, you know, looking to do a postdoc and uh, looked around and I was becoming, uh, you know, more and more interested in uh, biotech and gene transfer. And at the time, one of the hot areas was uh, liposomes. These are, you know, phospholipid vesicles and you know, the idea was we could stick RNA or DNA inside of them and use that as a delivery vehicle. So I, uh, I ended up at uh, UCSF in San Francisco working for uh, uh, Professor uh, Papa Hajopoulos. And that turned out to be so pivotal because, you know, UCSF is, uh, is where, you know, biotech really started. Herb Boyer, Stan Cohen, you know, did the first DNA transfer experiments in the, uh, the mid-70s. I got out there in about 78, 79. Uh, everything was a buzz with uh, what biotech could do in human healthcare. And, you know, people were cloning genes and introducing them into animal cells and human cells. And, you know, I guess I became fascinated with could we apply this technology to crops? And so that, uh, you know, I think it all started with growing up on a farm and, you know, having a chance to, to see how this science was exploding and, you know, in many ways being in the right place at the right time. Uh, it's, a, it's really cool. It would have been fun to be in your shoes back then. I was even kind of a spectator as a kid. I think I was 10 years old when I took out a book on genetic engineering from the library where I lived in uh, outside of Chicago. Um, I'm from Illinois, too. And uh, it was very fascinating to me that you would be able that you'd be able to move genetic material. And so here you are at ground zero where all this is happening at the time and place. And what exactly was happening in plants like in agrobacterium or, or other areas that really helped you start to formulate how you might approach the question of gene transfer in plants yeah. or outside of liposomes? You know, obviously that was already happening, but, but what were some other ways, other things that were happening in plants? Well, so as you know, at that time uh, when I was at UCSF, People had been able to, uh, you know, introduce genes into bacteria, into yeast, into animal cells. At that point in time, uh, no one had uh, been able to develop a technique for uh, for introducing genes into plant cells. And, you know, 
back then there were even rumors that, uh, I mean, I, I can remember people saying plants didn't have DNA or the DNA was, you know, had such a high GC content or whatever, whatever, that it couldn't happen. And so, uh, you know, it was a big challenge and, uh, you know, people were exploring lots of methods. Uh, I mentioned, uh, liposomes. Uh, I also spent time, uh, in Mario Capecchi's lab, um, in uh, Utah, looking at microinjection, uh, people were thinking about viruses. Uh, Agrobacterium was getting a lot of attention uh, because of its uh, natural uh, gene uh, transfer, but there were uh, challenges with, uh, you know, selectable markers with regeneration uh, and uh, a lot of uh, obstacles that that needed to be uh, overtaken and. Uh, you know, when I started looking after I finished my postdoc for uh, where to go, I, I interviewed at a couple universities. I interviewed at uh, a couple of uh, startup companies, uh, Genentech, Agricetus, a few of the others at the time. And then I, uh, I had the encounter of running into uh, Dr. Ernie Jaworski, who was uh, happened to be out in Boston at the same time I was attending a Gordon conference. And we met in the Boston airport. And uh, I think a combination of, uh, of Ernie's vision, his, uh, his pure charm and, uh, and talent uh, convinced me that uh, Monsanto was the, uh, was the right place to be, that they had the, uh, the knowledge of agriculture, the resources and the will to, uh, to make it happen. And uh, I guess that turned out to be right. <laughs> Whatever happened to, to liposomes? I know that you've you know written things on this in the reasonable recent time, like in the last twenty years. Does that technology still have some utility? Uh, not really in plants, but uh, there's a lot of people who use uh, uh, lipid-based DNA delivery now in animal cells, and uh, some of the breakthroughs were positively charged lipids and understanding uh, drugs that uh, facilitate uh, endocytosis and those kind of things. So, yeah, there's a number of, uh, of uh, lipid-based uh, vectors that are used in, uh, in, uh, in animal cell transformation. But in plants, uh, you know, once... Uh, once agrobacterium uh, really worked well and we could see that it applied not only to, uh, you know, to the broadleaf plants, the dicots, but also the grasses and monocots, uh, you know, it's really become uh, the universal system uh, for both efficiency and, uh, and breadth of utility. Well, let's dive into that particular watershed moment. You know, here you had this opportunity to uh, to demonstrate gene transfer using agrobacterium. Um, there was, uh, or at least presumably, you know, it works all the time in, in nature. You have uh, plant transformation, plant regeneration, you know, being able to start from cells in a tissue, in tissue culture and regenerate whole new plants. So these two different spheres are both operating independently and, and kind of starting to merge together. And multiple groups at the time, and this has got to be early 80s, late 70s, are starting to think of how do we put these things together. And it really almost seems like, to me, like this would be a perfect movie for Hollywood because <laughs> you've got a number of different players that all have the same goal that are taking different approaches to get there. And can you give me a little more of the backstory behind the history of that moment? Yeah, so I, I joined Monsanto in 81. And, you know, frankly, one of the reasons that in the end, I decided it was, it was key to, to, to be there was, and as you pointed out, there were a lot of challenges and a lot of unknowns. And it really was going to take multiple talents and teams of people 
working together to, uh, you know, to, to overcome all the obstacles. So, you know, when I joined Monsanto, um, Steve Rogers was already there uh, and Steve was a uh, worked in Dan Nathan's lab and he was an expert in, uh, in gene cloning. Rob Horsch was just coming in from uh, Riverside and he worked uh, and had the magic with, uh, with tissue culture and regeneration. And, you know, I brought in a, a focus on agrobacterium and, uh, and uh, gene delivery in, uh, in general. And, you know, when you think about it back at the time, uh, no one had, uh, had ever uh, uh, introduced a gene into a plant. We didn't know which genes would work and how we would uh, screen and select them. We didn't know whether the kinds of cells that we could get a gene into would be capable of regeneration. And then, you know, we didn't know in plants whether, uh, you know, DNA would uh, would pass through uh, meiosis and uh, and all of those challenges. So there were, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that needed to be uh, developed and worked on uh, simultaneously. And you know, drawing on a lot of the success from uh, from yeast and uh, and um, and from animal cells, we knew we needed to get a selectable marker. So, uh, you know, we worked hard on uh, on antibiotic resistance and uh, glyphosate resistance as markers. Rob Horsch uh, developed, you know, the tissue culture and regeneration systems. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I joined Monsanto, you know, an industrial chemical company, and almost all of our early work was done in uh, solanaceous plants like petunias and, uh, and tobacco. So, you know, that's the kind of work we were doing. And, uh, you know, the team uh, worked together, and, uh, and I think that was one of our real strengths. But also, you know, as you pointed out, you know, we had the benefit of uh, colleagues and consultants. Uh, you know, I spent time in uh, Mary Dell Chilton's lab. Uh, Jeff Shell, Mark Van Montague were consultants, as were, you know, folks like uh, Gene Nestor and uh, Rob Schilperut and others. And, you know, it was kind of interesting looking back. Um, you know, there was a lot of people in a lot of different labs and groups that were uh, focused on uh, the challenge of uh, developing a trend plant transformation system. At the same time, though, there was a lot of uh, collaboration and interaction and, uh, you know, uh, lots of uh, long uh, nights at uh, Gordon conferences and Keystones meeting where, uh, you know, where we shared our science and uh, and progress. And I think, you know, the way I would characterize it, you know, everybody kind of naturally would like to, to be the first. But I think what we all realized was you know, whoever developed these systems was going to help make a, a big contribution to plant science. So, you know, while there was competition, there was also, you know, a lot of collegial uh, sharing of, uh, of data and information. Well, that ultimately was reflected in the way in which the announcement of successful plant transformation uh, was announced, right? I mean, it was uh, kind of a it was a kind of a, a collective effort that was put into the spotlight uh, during a certain meeting, maybe in 1983. Or could you give yeah, me the back the Miami uh, Winter Symposium? Uh, Rob Horsch uh, uh, presented our work. Uh, Mary Dale Chilton uh, presented her group's work, and uh, Jeff Shell presented uh, his work on uh, on plant transformation. And it was, uh, it, it, I think, it really reflected the fact that. Uh, that um, you know, we all worked hard, and uh, and in the end, the uh, the field uh, you know benefited by uh, by that breakthrough. And you you know you mentioned that you grew up in you know rural area. I didn't know that before. I I had noticed it on your Wikipedia page that you're from Wellington, which is basically it's not even on most maps. 
Well, that's why I always tell people I'm from Hoopston because it had a few thousand people and hundred. And as I said, my uh, my graduating class had eighteen in it, so it was a it was a small school. Yeah, I think the population now is two hundred and twelve. So surprised. Yeah, but so so you grew up in this rural setting, and you saw the uh, challenges of agriculture, the things that were happening. Maybe a lot of the promise that was going on with lots of development, and in, uh, in, especially in corn and soybean space, uh, advanced hybrids and better crops, and millions of different companies. Well dozens of different companies producing hybrid seed. And then you're going and you're starting to look at being able to transfer select genes. And so what was going through your mind in, say, 1983 towards what the technology would hold for the future of agriculture? Well, again, I think that was a real benefit of, you know, being part of Monsanto, where there was an agricultural company with uh, Lots of experience in, you know, areas that are important to farmers for controlling uh, weeds and insects. And, you know, these these were important areas at the time. They remain important areas today. I mean, any anybody anywhere who's grown a garden knows that uh, weeds are a challenge. Insects are a challenge. And, you know, it's still estimated that around the world that, you know, maybe 25 or 30 percent of the world's crop production is still lost to, you know, uh, competition with weeds and, and insects. So those were areas that we uh, we focused on. And, uh, you know, clearly at the time, uh, Monsanto was, uh, was developing uh, the Roundup product. It had just been launched in 1974. And, you know, the, you know, the fact that it was very effective, that it controlled uh, all uh, the broadleaf and grass weeds, would mean that if we could uh, develop tolerance to uh, to glyphosate, the active ingredient, that it would be a very effective uh, weed control system. And you know, back at that time in the mid '80s, weed control in uh, in crop broadleaf crops like uh, like cotton and soybean was still a huge challenge. Uh, you know, I tell people often that one of my more memorable experiences on my dad's farm was, uh, you know, as a kid being eight or nine years old, you know, we would do the ritual every spring about this time of year where, you know, we'd get together with my cousins and the neighbor boys and we'd walk up and down these half mile uh, uh, bean fields, pulling the weeds out by hand that, you know, you just couldn't control with uh, cultivation or other methods. So it didn't take much to convince me that, uh, you know, if we could develop Roundup resistance in uh, crops, that it would be, you know, very important for farmers. Uh, I probably didn't realize at the time how significant it would be or how uh, broadly adopted it would be, but it was clearly a breakthrough. And I think similarly with insect control, the, uh, you know, the challenge of coming up with uh, new modes of actions and better and safer ways of controlling insects was, uh, was a real high priority. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great to hear the backstory on that. So we're speaking with Dr. Rob Fraley. He's the former chief technology officer of the Monsanto Company and the World Foods Prize winner of 2013. And on this, the fifth anniversary of the Talking Biotech podcast, we get to talk to one of the experts who was there at the very beginning. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back in just a minute. Going into year six. We want the Talking Biotech Podcast to be more about you, the listener. Send us your requests for guests. Send us the questions that you want answered. 
voice your concerns. Join us as a guest host. You see, we have built a platform. It's independent from universities and companies, and we control where this science show goes. The goal of this podcast has always been to raise the understanding of technology as it works in food, farming, and medicine, so that all of us can together combat misinformation, the copious filth that plagues the internet. We are here to help the environment, the food insecure, those that can have a normal life after a medical breakthrough, and of course, the farmers that feed us. These are the values that make the show continue. So your job is an easy one. Share the podcast in social media. Tell a friend. Tell two friends if you have that many, Science Geek. Tell people you don't really like. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that we continue to share the stories of science, the stories of technology, and the applications that will make our short time as a film of life on the crust of the earth a little more special. So thank you for listening. Send your ideas to kevinfulta at gmail.com. Share the link in social media. And now, back to this week's podcast. Now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Rob Fraley. He was the former chief technology officer of the Monsanto company and someone who I watched really grow as an outstanding communicator of science and someone who has uh, been at the forefront of not just the science, but also sharing the science and public dissemination um, really becoming a priority through mechanisms like Twitter and stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but let's talk about you know your role as the chief technology officer for Monsanto. Uh, you were with them during a big transition of the company from a chemical company to a seed company, and a lot of people don't know about this. So, what happened around that time, and what was the what were things that did change, and what were other things that maybe should have changed and didn't? Yeah, so you know, kind of looking back. Um... You know, I, I give a, a huge amount of credit to, uh, you know, the leadership of the company. I mentioned uh, Ernie Jaworski, um, other leaders. The CEO at the time was uh, Richard uh, Mahoney. Howard Schneiderman had joined us from uh, from California as, the, as a, a scientific leader. The company was looking, you know, when I joined Monsanto, it was an industrial chemical company. And it was looking uh, at this new science of biotechnology. Just as a small aside, way back when Monsanto was one of the uh, one of the uh, early investors in uh, in Genentech through some of the uh, through some of the funds, so they were interested in this science and uh, they were pr- prepared to make a uh, a big commitment. And you know, just to put it in perspective, you know, uh, I joined Monsanto in 1981, and we worked to develop the transformation, the gene transfer identify the weed and insect control traits that have, but, you know, those first products weren't launched until 1996 and 1997. So, you know, the company invested for over 15 years uh, in this science to, uh, to develop these products. And I give them a, a, a huge amount of, uh, of credit for, for their, uh, for their uh, foresight and for their stamina and for their, uh, for their risk taking. So, you know, as I said, we were an industrial chemical company, you know, 
you know, I, I remember at the time as I was taking more and more leadership and management roles, uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, management training programs. And, you know, the big thing was companies trying to change and uh, and transform themselves. And, you know, I literally with the uh, with the development of biotechnology, I, I literally watched and helped participate, you know, as a as a big industrial chemical company uh, became a biotech company. Uh, and then uh, through acquisitions, literally became a seed company and with more acquisitions became a, a digital company. And so, you know, for me, what was was rewarding was to see how science and innovation and products can really drive that uh, that uh, transformation. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the the science part, the uh, the focus on product development were uh, were real strengths of the company i think you know you know just to, to flag the uh you know the thing that we probably should have done better or probably should have changed or viewed differently uh which you know has influenced me ever since has been what we needed to do to bring you know the rest of the industry the rest of the food system and consumers at large you know, along with the uh, the technology progress, so that's uh, that's something that should have changed even more. Looking back, that's something that I think all of us in science realized, though, at some point was you know the way that we failed to uh, welcome and inspire the public with our innovation, rather than just giving them innovation. And yeah, and, and you know, I think the thing that, that I get a little bit of. Uh, of comfort from is that, uh, I guess not comfort, but I, I, I don't feel so, uh, so isolated as, you know, if you look around today and you look at the, uh, you know, here we are in the middle of a, a pandemic uh, crisis and, uh, you know, there's concerns over whether, uh, you know, people will take vaccines uh, once they're developed, uh, you know, the story of communicating, uh, you know, the benefits of vaccination needs more help. Uh, you know, the, the country is still very divided on, uh, you know, the science behind climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, we haven't gotten a consensus in that area either, you know, from a public perspective. So, you know, whether it's whether we're talking about biotech and GMOs, whether we're talking about healthcare and vaccines, whether we're talking about climate change and actions to move forward, you know, it's clear to me that, you know, we need to do a lot more as, you know, as companies, as universities, as folks involved in any aspect of innovation to bring the public and the decision makers along with the science. And, uh, and for me, that's, uh, that's recognition of, of something that I think is uh, is absolutely critical. I, I often say today that when I give talks that, you know, it, it's absolutely critical to have great science to produce great products that, that can drive, you know, benefit to, uh, to consumers, but without a, an equal effort on, you know, communicating that science and uh, both to policymakers and to the public, uh, you know, that science may not be successful. I mean, I, I, we've seen a, a number of products uh, fail or delayed uh, or not adequately uh, uh, utilized uh, because of, uh, of uh, public concerns. 
That's a really great point. And I think, you know, because we can innovate all day, but we're not uh, translating that to application as, as fast as we could. But one of the things that I've noticed just in the time that I've looked at Monsanto as a company in social media space and even just in a website or whatever, there really seemed to be a big switch. So maybe somewhere around 2012, 2013, where you were seeing more and more employees engaging. I think you were engaging more in, you know, with the public in that point. And what was it that changed internally? You know, was there some real come to Jesus moment that somebody said, maybe here's how we fix it? Yeah, I think th- you know, looking back, uh, there were—I'm sure there were lots of discussions across the company. But I—I uh, I remember uh, one, uh, you know, particular meeting of our leadership team where we just kind of, you know, came to grips with the idea that what was going on wasn't working. You know, you know, you think about Monsanto, you think about most companies uh, who, uh, you know, you know, drug companies, chemical companies who develop products. They were, they were used to the model that you put your effort into creating science and good products. You work through, you know, the regulatory approval. You know, if I were the head of R&D for a drug company, it would be the FDA. If it were, uh, you know, a, a chemical, it might be a TSCA or, or EPA or one of the regulatory agencies. You know, it turns out to develop a, uh, a crop biotech product that, you know, EPA, USDA, and FDA are all involved in uh, in the regulatory oversight. So once we uh, got our regulatory approvals, uh, we thought it was almost that was it, and all we needed to do was uh, was sell. And uh, you know that didn't turn out to be the case. And then I think there was some belief for a while that you know the food companies or someone else in the in the in the in the, uh, the latter part of the food chain uh, would uh, would be more involved. And I think we just, in the end, realized that uh, we needed to do more as a company. And that's uh, when we uh, became much more uh, involved in outreach, where we really started to use the, uh, you know, the social media tools. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, you know, where consumers get their information on science has changed remarkably. Uh, you know, the last time I looked, uh, I think people now get 75 or 80 percent of their, you know, science-based information on uh, social media and the Internet. So no one's reading uh, papers or, uh, you know, listening to uh, to uh, articles in the newspapers. And so I think we had to adopt both the uh, the message, the uh, the channels for that message, and, uh, and uh, you know, take the risk of showing up in, uh, you know, forums like uh, debates and, uh, and uh, you know, meeting with, uh, with uh, local, uh, local organizations and, and having the kinds of uh, discussions that, uh, that really uh, make a difference. And so, uh, you know, I, I realized early on that uh, it was hard for me to ask other people to do it if I wasn't doing it myself. So, you know, I started getting involved in social media and, uh, you know, in the last four or five years of my career, I probably spent half my time uh, giving talks and uh, and reaching out to uh, to connect with uh, with individuals and consumers to, uh, you know, to talk through the, uh, you know, the, the benefits, the challenges and, and some of the issues with products. Well, really, for me, your big breakout was probably the Intelligence Squared debate. And that was like, what, uh, December of 2015, maybe, or 2014. And uh, that was a real interesting turning point because, you know, here you were 
you know, as, as a, uh, Technology, chief technology officer of a company that a lot of people don't like getting out to speak about the benefits of a technology. And uh, of course, teamed up with Allison Van Eden and being is fantastic, but against two other people who come from a much more emotional and, and uh, you know, kind of wearing a halo side. And yet you guys really walked away with a very clear victory, not only in terms of, uh, you know, the preaching to the choir, but also by shifting a lot of folks in the middle. And so was that a strategy you talked about at the time, or was it just kind of, you know, you talking about the beautiful parts of the technology? Well, first of all, I would give uh, Allison a lot of credit. I think it shows the, uh, the the power and wisdom of choosing a good partner. And uh, Dr. Van Eminem was, uh, was, uh, was very uh, very effective, very passionate, and uh, and brought you know, her own knowledge of uh, you know both the challenges and opportunities of uh, genetically engineering uh, livestock. You know, I think one of the things that's important in that uh, in that format is you know we had an hour plus in order to address questions and deliver the uh, you know the 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 key details for people to really understand it. And very rarely do you get more than, you know, a minute or five minutes of someone's attention. So, you know, one of the challenges I see always is how do you deliver an effective message in a short period of time, particularly when you're on uh, social media. So, you know, part of the, uh, part of the challenge is to, uh, is to figure out the, uh, the, uh, the content and the delivery that really is effective in uh, in delivering that a message, and that means you know being more personal, being uh, being more emotional, and understanding uh, uh, what people both want and need to hear. And you know one one of the things that I learned, and you know, and I uh, you know I'm a uh, I am a a uh, my mentor was uh, Dr. Norm Borlaug. And for years, he and I would uh, would give talks, uh, you know, at universities and conferences. And he would talk about the green revolution, and I would talk about the gene revolution. And I uh, I adopted uh, a lot of his messages and, and learned a lot from him on some of the uh, the challenges. And uh, you know, I found myself uh, starting almost every talk with the uh, you know the fact that world population is increasing, which is true. That the demand for food production is uh, is going to increase, and challenges with uh, you know food production were going to become uh, become very uh, very uh, significant in the future if we didn't develop new technologies. But as I started talking to audiences in California or New York City, one of the things I realized was, you know, I, I was talking to folks who uh, who really had never experienced uh, hunger or lack of food or availability. And one of the things that, you know, I think our company and our industry really failed to talk about was how all of these uh, innovations not only help food security, but also help enhance the environment. You know, and if you just, for just a minute, if you if you think about the Roundup Ready crops, you know, they're great. They, uh, they, uh, they help farmers control weeds, but they, you know, for many years caused for dramatic reduction of tillage and erosion and water and, and soil moisture evaporation. They had a huge environmental benefit. And the 
insect protected crops enabled farmers to uh, to target just selective insects, keep the beneficials. Uh, the technology that was uh, that's been developed through breeding and biotech that increased crop yields has a profound effect on reducing how many acres need to be uh, need to be planted. So the environmental story, I think we'd often overlooked or ignored, and in many cases, it's even more powerful to a lot of people than food security. And so I think learning that and, uh, and recognizing how people identify with, uh, with the environment, uh, it, it creates a different uh, uh, starting point for a conversation. Well, you mentioned the Roundup Ready technology, and you know certainly you're familiar with what's happening in the area of Roundup and glyphosate. And do you have any particular feelings or, you know, I, I guess, what is your take on what's happening right now with respect to that chemical? And is it something farmers will continue to have access to? I believe so. I mean, the, the science is squarely in, in favor of the uh, technology. The EPA has just recently uh, reviewed the, uh, the, uh, the whole data package for glyphosate and absolutely, uh, you know, um, put it at its highest level of safety and concluded that it had, uh, was not a carcinogen. And so has every other major regulatory body in the world. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, uh, the uh, IARC organization and WHO uh, came to a different conclusion, but it's, it's not unexpected. I think of the thousand different uh, compounds or activities that they've reviewed, they've determined that about 995 are carcinogens, and that includes about everything we, uh, we eat or get exposed to. Uh, there's a long connection between IARC and uh, the plaintiff's bar, and, uh, and that um, it's something we, uh, you know, you can look into and, uh, and educate your, uh, your listeners to. But, you know, I think the science is strong. I think the product is, uh, is very effective, very safe, and, uh, you know, it's going to continue to be a, a key component of, uh, of uh, agriculture and food production around the world. Well, when you look at the landscape of new technologies, whether they're genetic or computational or whatever, what gets you most excited about the next wave of farming? Well, I think, you know, we're going to see, uh, we're going to, you know, on the biology side, you know, I, I'd point out two things. So first of all, you know, um, breeding crops, whether it's uh, corn or soybeans or smallholder crops in Africa has now completely changed with, uh, you know, having, you know, the knowledge of every single gene in the seed and, uh, you know, the, the mapping technologies, the testing technologies, the screening technologies, the costs have come down precipitously. Uh, and, um, you know, there's projects uh, going on to complete basically the, uh, you know, the, um, the, the gene mapping of, of every one of the, the small and large crop species. And what that does is give breeders, you know, incredible insight. They, uh, they can identify rare recombinants. They can create new combinations, which will greatly accelerate, uh, you know, yield gains from, uh, from, uh, from breeding. And uh, so, you know, molecular breeding is, uh, is, uh, is 
taking uh, yields to a new level. And that's why we're seeing, you know, record yields in corn and soybean and, and other crops. You know, clearly the, the gene editing tools uh, are becoming universally uh, used. There's, you know, multiple different uh, protein and, uh, and nucleic acid based uh, editing tools that basically uh, allow, uh, you know, virtually every biologist and scientist to, uh, you know, to, uh, to modify selective nucleotides in the genome. And, uh, you know, it, it's universal. Uh, you know, I was judging a, a science contest a couple of years ago at, uh, in one of the St. Louis high schools and, you know, the high school seniors were doing gene editing. So it, uh, <laughs> it have, uh, it, and and since importantly, gene editing has been uh, declared by the uh, USDA to be a you know a natural uh, mutagen, unlike uh, you know like every other uh, breeding uh, cross, it doesn't have the uh, expensive uh, um, detailed uh, regulatory costs, and and that's appropriate given the fact that uh, you know the technology has a has a very specific. Uh, uh, you know, targeted chain. So I think that will help uh, uh, make that technology available. There's still some roadblocks there because uh, the European regulatory agencies uh, have viewed it uh, differently. They viewed gene editing more like uh, GMO technology. And uh, I'll come back and talk about that in just a second. And uh, even in the U.S., I mean, while the USDA has declared uh, that um, that gene editing in crops is is natural and doesn't need the uh, additional uh, regulatory oversight. You know the uh, FDA is treating uh, gene edited animals uh, more like uh, you know developing a new drug, and you know that's certainly one of the areas where uh, you know Dr. Van Enenum is very uh, passionate about uh, because there's so many opportunities to improve productivity in livestock and in disease resistance uh, using uh, gene editing. And, you know, it's kind of ironic as a scientist looking back at all this, uh, you know, now that all of these uh, different plant genomes have been sequenced, you know, we, we realize that nature has been moving genes between species from the beginning of time. And uh, almost every week now, there's a, a new example of uh, genes being moved from historically from insects or from fungal organisms into crops or from, you know, between different uh, crop species. And so, you know, it turns out, you know, I always like to say that uh, nature probably turns out to be a a pretty, uh, pretty good genetic engineer. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of genetic variation that we can blame on that. I, there's a, you know, I could bore you silly with some of the things I'm working on, but it's uh, right now a lot of the interest in engineering is really its precision and the way we can do this better than we ever could before. And you mentioned gene editing. You know, it does this kind of technology take what really was a, a, a consolidating field, you know, where you went from hundreds of seed companies down to essentially three. And now does gene editing really democratize that where you start to see potentially more work released from small companies or academic labs? Yeah, I think not only gene editing, but also 
you know, the uh, the other great advance that's transforming, you know, farming and agriculture is the digitization of the farm, where, you know, we're collecting hundreds of, uh, of different data layers from every acre where we have the ability to, uh, you know, to visualize and monitor every plant in the field. Uh, you know, I, I, I basically say, I think everyone's familiar with the concept of personalized medicine, where, you know, you go into a doctor's office, you get your DNA sequence, that information lets you know maybe what particular type of mutation has occurred in your body or what type of metabolic enzymes may be more amenable to different types of, uh, of uh, pharmaceutical treatments. A farmer has now got that same capability. I mean, they're mapping their fields. Every part of the field is a little different. Uh, changing the fertilization, changing the planting rate, changing the soil amendments, being able to monitor that crop daily with uh, satellite imagery and follow literally every plant in the field, you know, the, and, you know, they're transformational. To your point on, uh, on, the, uh, on the accessibility, um, you know, we're seeing the, the, the cost of gene editing and sequencing, you know, make the biology tools applicable across the board. And, you know, we're seeing startup companies and universities and small companies, uh, you know, creating uh, innovations. Same thing's happening on the digital side. I mean, uh, you know, a wave of uh, digital startups, uh, you know, smaller farmers in Africa or India who may not have a big green or red tractor with a computer on it, all have uh, cell phones and uh, have access to weather information, market information, uh, advice and recommendations, and uh, can start to use these tools as well. So I think we're seeing a uh, not only a huge democratization of the uh, of the technology and tools, but we're seeing dramatically increased competition. Um, you know, I think as I look back over the last uh, several years, you know, there's uh, there have now been thousands of startup companies in the food and ag and digital ag space. And that that's wonderful. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people think because of the, the crop chemical industry or some of the seed industry is has consolidated. Uh, I think there's probably more competition, you know across the uh, the spectrum and across the globe than ever before because there are so many uh, new uh, new innovations you know I you know kind of aging myself you know I still remember when uh, when Amazon was an electronic bookstore uh, and now they're uh, now they're putting up rocket ships and, uh, and building driverless cars so the the power of technology is it's transformational and that's exactly what we're seeing did uh, just I meant to ask you before? Did the kid in the science fair know who you were and what you did? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure because uh, her project was uh, was uh, not in plants, but uh, we had a great conversation. And you know, what when you walk away from that, I guess I have two feelings. First of all, I am uh, I'm uh, super confident in the future of of science and. Uh, the incredible innovations are possible. And my second feeling is I'm sure glad I retired because I don't think I would be able to uh, handle the competition that's coming. 
Oh, no kidding. I, I, I feel so obsolete. And, uh, you know, I, I almost sometimes I feel like I should go to classrooms and teach them wrong. <laughs> because, because here are the people who are here. I am teaching Ph.D. students how to write really good grants. <laughs> it's like, you know, back off, you know. Oh, man, it's funny. Um, but back to the idea of um, agriculture, um, you know, what's coming next and our innovation, ability to innovate. At least in the U.S., do you think that ag policy can ever go as fast as our innovation? Well, I think innovation always leads the way, right? and in you know, you know the the U.S. system is is a um, I, I think it's a bit of a paradox. So you know, I, I would tell you that in many ways, you know, and I'm speaking just on the on the the crop side for now. You know, the fact that you know the um, coordinated framework, which was the original decision to have uh, crop biotechnology regulated by existing FDA, EPA, and USDA uh, regulators was a good decision. It covered the the food safety, the feed safety, and the environmental safety without, uh, you know, creating a a new wave of bureaucracy. And in general, it has, uh, has worked well. Um, And in many ways, it's still the, uh, the gold, standard for regulation around the world. Now, there are cases where, uh, you know, where things haven't worked out that way. I mentioned one of them. Uh, gene-edited crops uh, have one uh, one regulatory approach. Gene-edited animals have another. Uh, that, that will certainly slow down the advance in animal agriculture. There are countries out there that have, have really placed a clear priority on agriculture. Uh, Brazil, most notably, has, uh, has worked very hard to transform their regulatory process. And in many cases, uh, you know, they're... Uh, their reviews and approvals uh, occur faster than the U.S., which is at a, you know which is at a disadvantage. Uh, uh, but I, I still think that the U.S. system has uh, has a lot of strength and, in many ways, remains the, uh, the the gold standard. And you know the agencies, to their credit, are constantly trying to update regulation. I think they're still influenced politically and by public opinion, and that's why I think the real challenge still is. We we need to bring the uh, the public uh, along with us on uh, on these complex science issues, and that's a that's a real challenge because, uh, as I said, people get their information today through social media. Uh, so being effective in that regard is uh, is uh, is key to uh, to science uh, communication. You know, there's a lot of different uh, theories and a lot of different sources out there. And even as we, you know, uh, today are experiencing the uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of challenges on getting, uh, you know, the scientific uh, information. I guess I, I believe optimistically that as we... Uh, as we um, as we get to the end of this pandemic, and you know we have treatments and uh, and vaccines, you know I, I think it will reflect on the fact that uh, that science uh, can bring huge benefit, and you know whether it's uh, 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 healthcare and uh, and human safety, whether it's food security, um, you know I hope there's an opportunity for science to uh, reclaim uh, uh, a lot of the uh, the uh, the public support that that's needed and uh, is key because we do have, you know, many challenges ahead of us as, uh, as, you know, our, our planet uh, grows and becomes warmer. And, you know, I, as an optimist, as a scientist, I, uh, 
I believe we can uh, do better, but I think our current system is, uh, is, um, is pretty good. And we need to put our focus on, uh, on that element of science education to, to the public and to, uh, to policymakers so that we're, we're making the right decisions for the right reasons. No, really good. And over the, you've had an extremely long career with tremendous contributions, you know, World Food Prize, all these other good things that have, that have come from that. But what are you doing now and what's next? Well, I have, uh, I've uh, enjoyed about a full year of retirement and I've been uh, blessed with uh, two uh, grandchildren during, uh, during that period. So, uh, you know, uh, grandchildren and uh, traveling with my uh, wife, Laura, on a lot of the uh, the areas that, uh, you know, we were probably too busy when I was working hard and she was working and we were raising a family. Uh, you know, uh, travel is uh, is uh, is uh, one of our, our key priorities. And, uh, you know, we uh, we split time between our home in St. Louis and in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. So those are uh, our two great locations. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still uh keeping very active on uh, social media and communication. Uh, if, uh, if your listeners want to follow me, uh, you know, on uh, Twitter, my handle is at Rob Fraley, R-O-B-B-F-R-A-L-E-Y. And, uh, you know, you can reach me uh, the same way on, uh, on LinkedIn. And I'm, uh, I'm still writing. I've written a couple of articles on, uh, on the coronavirus and the impact of uh, coronavirus on agriculture recently. I'm uh, working with a few, um, uh, startups as a, as an advisor, but also uh, we have an organization in St. Louis um, called uh, BioSTL, which is a startup uh, organization. The Danforth Center, a uh, number of other organizations are supporting that. And uh, you know, I'd like to see uh, more uh, ag and food related startups. So that's uh, that's key. Uh, my alma mater, as I said, is the University of Illinois, and I'm working with them on uh, on some science communication uh, projects because I, uh, I I do passionately believe that uh, you know communicating science to the public is uh, is so uh, critical. And you know, one of the organizations that I've spent a lot of time with that's uh, headquartered here in St. Louis is the uh, is the U.S. Ranchers and Farmers Alliance, and uh, you know, it's an organization that's been around for just a few years. But what's nice about it is it has uh, it has farm group constituency, food company constituency, environmental groups, uh, all working together to to take a um, a pro uh, ag and food innovation message to the uh, to the uh, to the consumer, which is clearly, I believe, what's needed. So, uh, you know, my passion is really uh, really focused on. Uh, on communicating the importance of innovations in the ag and food chain. And, you know, I believe that, you know, these innovations are just as important as innovations in medicine and healthcare, uh, because the, the challenges as we think about whether it's the, the next uh, uh, pandemic, whether it's a, uh, a food crisis as a result of, uh, of disease or whether it's the long-term implications of climate change, you know, the, the solution is going to have to be new ideas, new innovations, new ways of doing things. And I think it's probably more important ever that we see, uh, we see uh, funding for these ideas and that these innovations can get the, uh, the support they needed to, uh, to make a difference. Well, it's, it's a really great point to go out on. And certainly, uh, I would recommend to anybody, please follow uh, Dr. Fraley. And maybe one last question that if I can ask this one is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, 
What did what advice would the 2020 Rob Fraley give to the 1981 Rob Fraley? Oh man, I think about that late at night. I don't know if we can talk about those things. <laughs> I think I was, uh, I was uh, successful because, um, you know, I, uh, I recognized that it, you know, early on that it, uh, it takes a team of people if you're going to have a, uh, if you're going to make a big impact. And that, that brought me into Monsanto in the first place. And, you know, I've always been a big advocate of, uh, of team-based approaches and, you know, today with so many bright people, with so much complexity, uh, it's more important than effort. You know, I think as I looking back, I wish I was probably maybe just a, a little bit more patient, a little bit kinder and uh, and gentler. That would certainly be uh, be uh, be one thing that I would uh, tell myself. You know, a lot of the things that I learned early on, I, I mentioned my uh, my relationship with uh, with uh, Doctor Borlaug, and uh, you know. We, we often would spend uh, time late at night and he would talk about some of the uh, the challenges. I mean, the Green Revolution took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of energy. It took a lot of persistence on Norm's part because, uh, you know, um, you know, there were uh, there were uh, politicians and regulators in India and Pakistan who, you know, didn't want to see uh you know, a, an American bringing, uh, you know, Mexican wheats into those countries be successful. And there were a lot of roadblocks. And, you know, even today, there are folks who would look back at the Green Revolution and uh, and uh, and fault what uh, what uh, what Norma did and accomplished. And, you know, he always said that, you know, no matter what you do, there's going to be pushback. And and uh, I think, you know, if, if I were a little bit smarter back in 81, it would have been nice to realize that and uh, to, to do more to build, uh, you know, more coalition, more support and to uh, to really recognize, you know, early on that uh, that you can only go as far and fast as uh, as the public and consumers will allow you. And uh, that would certainly be the big lesson. I really appreciate your time on this today. It's funny because out of that whole cohort of folks back at Monsanto at that time, I I think I met everybody and I worked very closely with, uh, you know, with Harry Klee, you know, who's, who's here. And I've known uh, Fred Perlack for a while and, and Rob Horsch for a while. And when you were coming to speak at the university of Florida, I was a little bit petrified because I kind of uh, didn't know what to expect. And I'll tell you, you were so unbelievably kind with your time and to spend as much time as you did with students and with me and with all the other folks involved, it gave a great talk. Um, it was a r- real testament to, uh, you know, that uh, kindness and, and softness is very much alive and, you know, really, really helps your message. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Well, Kevin, this was great. It's good to be part of the uh, the five-year anniversary and, you uh, you know, I appreciate the kind words, but I'll tell you, uh, you know, you've done so much yourself in terms of uh, leading the uh, the charge on communication that uh, that it makes those words uh, extra special. So uh, keep up the podcast, keep up all the good work, and uh, thank you for the time and the uh, and the opportunity to to look uh, both backwards and forwards. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Come back next week as we start year six (laughs) uh, in the series. Uh, 
please share with others. Uh, think about us on the Patreons. Um, you know the drill. Uh, more reviews mean more exposure to science, and we're in the top 17 of all life science podcasts, so that really means a lot that so many of you listen on such a regular basis. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Five years ago, I would have never predicted it would still be around today. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.